We heard that song a year ago. One of the questions that rise from a grace focus is, are we free to do whatever we want to do? What about obedience? What about the commandments? And this is where Paul directs our attention as we come to Romans 13. Let's read verses 9 through 14, and then we'll talk about them. Paul writes, it's in your worship folder if you want to follow along. Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Let us walk properly, as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. When we talk about obedience biblically, we're talking about love. Love is the yardstick that God measures obedience by. Love is to be the yardstick we are to measure ourselves by. And when Paul talks about love, he talks about a few things. We learn a few things about love. First, we learn that love is an unlimited debt, an unpayable debt. That's what he says. Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The love account is never fully paid up. There are commandments that you can say, check. Murder, check. Stealing, check. Didn't do it, didn't do it. Love is not one of those things you can check off. It's a continuing debt that we owe. It's a debt that we pay daily, but still owe on a daily basis. Love is an unlimited debt, and love is the fulfillment of the law. That's what he says in verse 9. For the commandments... You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's a way to fulfill what is it that God wants from us. What does obedience look like? And this is what it looks like. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That sums up everything that God asks and demands of us. The command to love, biblically, is not a command to feel a certain way. It's a command to respond a certain way, to treat others a certain way. That's what love is biblically. Uh, it says love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Um, the reason why love your neighbor sums up the law is that it's to love is to care for one another. I remember I worked at Danvers State Hospital when I was going to seminary, and there was a program that clinical pastoral education that you had to be involved in some type of place, and you had to 
try to apply what you were learning in a real-life situation. So I went to Danvers State Hospital, and overwhelming. I remember the first time I walked in there, there was a guy who walked up to me, and and he says, you're holy and I'm not holy. And I said, whoa. <laughs> um, but then I learned over the time that I interacted with him that this individual had real problems. And in fact, they at that time in the late 80s, they were doing his deinstitutionalization. And what they were doing is moving people out of um, those types of care. And so Dave did that and he went and, and drank a bottle of bleach. Um, he and naturally you could understand by that if you run into somebody who's harming himself you know something is wrong we don't love ourselves if we harm ourselves and he couldn't and didn't we love ourselves by caring for ourselves that's what love means we love ourselves by caring for ourselves providing for ourselves we love others by caring for them as well Um, we're told love your neighbor as yourself which raises a question who is our neighbor And Jesus responded to that question. Somebody asked the exact same thing. Okay, love your neighbor as yourself. Who's my neighbor? And here's the way Jesus replied. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, a Jewish priest, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came, a priest was a full-time minister, and a Levite was not full-time, but, but was of the caste of people who could serve in the temple. Anyways, so this Levite goes by. When he comes to the place and saw him passed by on the other side, but a Samaritan As he journeyed, Samaritans were considered half-breeds, Jewish half-breeds, and they were hated by those purebred Jews from the south. Samaria was in the north where there had been a lot of idolatry in Israel's history, and that's why they were looked down on. Anyway, so the Samaritan, um, uh, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And here's what Jesus, how Jesus responded to who was my neighbor. He responds, well, this is what he says. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Um, what Jesus talked about, he answered the question, who is my neighbor, to say who acts like a neighbor, who is the one who should act neighborly. And that's his, and what he ended up saying, he said the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. So we're not to wait for a neighbor, we're to be a neighbor to those whom we find who are in need of care. That's what the Samaritan shows us. And so it, it explains to us that's who the neighbor is and what does it mean to love a neighbor. Uh, There's a lot of different ways to describe or identify love, to characterize love. Um, The love God commands is both wide and deep. Wider and deeper than the love that we tend to think about when we think about loving people. Um, 
Jesus said, we're to love not just those within our circles, but those outside of them. Here's what he said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I think you'd agree, that's why. Not just, don't just love the people that you get along with. Don't just love the people that you're comfortable with. You think the same way. You relate very easily to them. Um, the bonds of love biblically are to extend to um, enemies. And that's why you can't really emotionally love an enemy. You can't really do that. You can care for an enemy if they something happens to them. You could provide for them, care for them. And, and that's why that's the sense we get for love in the Bible. It's practical. Jesus goes on. He says um, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Um, Christian love extends to them, not just to us. And that's what makes it broader, wider. It's also deeper. The rule that Israelites lived by was called the silver rule. Here it is from Rabbi Hillel. What is hateful to yourself? Do to no other. That's the way they describe what it means to love. What is hateful to yourself, do to no other. If you wouldn't want it done to you, don't do it to someone else. And that's the way the Israelites lived. That's how they loved one another. You didn't want this to happen, then you didn't do it. Uh, Jesus came up with a different rule, not silver, but gold. And here's what he said. Do to others as you would have them do to you. And I think we can see the difference, right? Not what is hateful, don't do. But what you would want somebody to do for you, this you do for them. That's This is deeper. It's deeper than the love that existed at the time. So this is what Paul says, goes through these things and talks about love. And here's the question that we ask. Why is he making this point? Who's he talking to, and why is he arguing what he's arguing? Um, I think we're going to find, well, we're going to find that Jewish religious elements are seeking to pull Jewish Christians back under the law of Moses. They would have been raised understanding that God has Ten Commandments, but those Ten Commandments, there are another 613 commands. And they had all these kind of ways that you had to figure out, what do I do? And it was very confusing following this law. And that's why the Pharisees were very busy. They were always being asked, what should I do about this? And they knew this law and that law. And that's what they were. Israel was a theocracy. And the Pharisees were like lawyers. Our, in a democracy, uh, lawyers kind of apply and teach the law of the Constitution. In a theocracy, the law of God was the law of the land, and therefore the religious professionals, they were the ones who were the lawyers at the time, and and Pharisees were always being asked about, well, what does it mean to love somebody if I'm in this situation and that? Um, Paul cuts through the confusion to reveal the heart of obedience, and he doesn't just 
eliminate the 613. He, he doesn't just eliminate the 10. He focuses the 613, the 10. In fact, any other commandment in the Bible focuses on one thing. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Um, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. This is what the law really is asking us to do, to love our neighbor as ourselves. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. He's encouraging Jewish Christians at the time to continue to be jars of clay. And the reason why we know this, he says, look what he says in verse 11. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Well, they're not just dozing off. This is a prophecy from Isaiah. And Paul is alluding to some promises God made. Uh, look what it says in Isaiah 60, verses 1 to 2. That's in your worship folder if you want to follow along. Here's what he says, Isaiah 60. Isaiah writes, I Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. At the time Isaiah wrote, here's this condition, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the people. The Light of God's glory, God's glory, the reflection of what he is and what he thinks and what he's like. So to know God, to see God is kind of to be standing in this light. And this light existed in certain places, but not in the realm of the Gentiles. Most of us are Gentiles, non-Jews. And darkness is over the land because people just didn't know God. There was no one there to tell them about God. They believed in all kinds of gods, myriad gods. And Israel believed in one God, the true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and what God, what Isaiah prophesies is light has come and the glory of God rises upon you. And it's talking about Israel at the time. They are the children of Abraham and the glory of God rises on them and shines light on them. Uh, the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. What Isaiah promises is that God promises in a way that did not exist at the time to reveal his face. When God reveal his, reveals his face, it is kind of revealing his glory. If you remember what happened to Moses, he was up on Mount Sinai. The light of the Lord shone on him and his face was Changed. That's what glory does. Glory is the expression of God's relational demands, and glory changes the person upon whom it shines. I don't know if there's a more important thing to understand biblically than that. We are made in such a way, glory from God changes the person upon whom it shines. Therefore, to understand God, to make room for God, to think about him, to spend time identifying what does this mean as we spend time understanding that we can't see God. But when we read and try to understand and think, and when we come to church, and when we think and look at 
what God thinks about us. That process of putting the light of his glory and standing in it is going to change us. You say, how do it just does. When Moses was up on the mountain, remember what happened? His face was transformed. He didn't know it. He just went up, talked to God, understood what God was saying, and came down, and people were going, holy smokes. He didn't go up there and decide, okay, let me see, I just talked to God, and I probably should look like it. Let me see. So what do I do? How do I look like I talk to God? So maybe I could make my face real red. <laughs> you know, that's not going to work. They'll think I'm just embarrassed. You know, so what ended up happening, he didn't do that. His face had changed. Here's the deal. When you make room for God, it changes you even when you're not aware of it. That's the way we've been created. That's what that's that's what that's how this thing works. Um, God promises to shine glory to and through the children of Abraham upon the rest of mankind. So what it says, the whole world is in darkness. And what God says, I am going to shine my light on some of the children of Israel and then to and through them, I'm going to shine my light upon the rest of mankind. Look what it says in Isaiah 66. I will set a sign among them. I will send some of those who survive to the nations. God's going to send a sign, the cross. Some of the Israelites who were living and there at the time understood that Jesus is God. And Jesus, and we'll experience it at the end, and Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. And so what they understood over time, and God is giving us a new covenant, not the old one, but the new one. It was Israelites who understood that. And what they did, God sent them, that's what he says, to the distant lands that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. They will proclaim my glory among the nations, the nations of the Gentiles. So, God promised to send a Jewish remnant to shine the light of his glory in the midst of Gentiles. And you know what Paul's doing in this letter? It was a really hard thing. If you were a Jewish Christian living in the Roman Empire, you really weren't accepted by Jews because you were Christian. And you weren't accepted by Gentiles because you're Jews. They were like a people without a nation. And why God dispatched them is so that we would have the opportunity to read about how God thinks about us, to learn about a new covenant. Um, and he's what Paul is doing, he's encouraging him to persevere. It was really hard. And the longer time went on, the more difficult it was. He writes, For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. What they thought at the time, and we would have thought it too, they thought, that Jesus' return could happen at any moment. Now, the fact is, it's been a couple thousand years, and it still hasn't occurred, but it's going to happen. He's going to come back physically, publicly, not like a little kid in a womb, well, the fetus in a womb. He's going to come, and he's going to be large and in charge, and that's going to happen. They thought that was going to happen really quickly. 
They didn't know how long it would be. Uh, devotion was buoyed by the fact that Jesus' second coming was just around the corner. They were looking at those, treasuring up, you know, had a lot of money, and they would say, <laughs> enjoy it while you can. <laughs> um, at first, it was easy to be magnanimous and to pity people who weren't going to be there, but then what happened, months turned into years. And years turned into decades. And those who stored up treasures on earth were able to live a very comfortable life off of the things that they had amassed. Um, it provides for their families as well. For Christians, especially Jewish Christians, life was passing them by and had passed them by. It's one thing to make a decision that's going to impact you and perhaps a wife and mother and father, but to make a decision that's going to impact the kids. And so to be the child of a Jewish Christian in the Roman Empire, you couldn't get great jobs. It was a very difficult life, and as the years went by and Jesus still isn't coming back, it became more and more difficult. Um, it's one thing to begin well. It's another thing to finish well, especially when you have to wait until the far side of the grave to experience the benefits of what you've worked for in this life. J.C. gets that, doesn't he? He knows what it feels like to be with him face to face. The benefits of the, the time and the service. He knows that now. It's hard to keep on putting off things that you want to enjoy, waiting for a day when everything will come. And that's what Paul is trying to get them to do, is trying to get them to persevere. The motive for obedience cannot be limited to now. There's benefits to follow Christ. There really are. They don't... Um, they don't justify the cost, though. If the benefits of following Jesus are just confined to what happens on this side of eternity, it's really not worth it. Um, however, um, there are then benefits that that do override now costs, uh, but that's what these individuals, they can't, um, they are looking around at those who benefit of this, from a this side of eternity focus, and it, it causes them to be bitter. They want to give up. It's hard. It's not what they signed up for. They didn't know that it would be this difficult for this long. They said, Jesus is going to come any minute, and Paul encourages them to persevere. Hang in there. Hang in there. Eternity is real. It's real. And he, well, it's what he says, let us walk properly, as in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. He talks about three sets of behaviors. The first, wild party and drunkennesses. Then he says, that's not for 
this time period, he's talking to Christians in Rome, and I think he's talking about Jewish Christians in particular. Um, sexual sin describes the second. Sins that tear apart the community, quarreling and jealousy. And the reason why these things are not what they should be investing in, because I think what Paul understands, there's work to do. There's work to do. Because God revealed his glory to some who were sent to the Roman Empire to reveal this glory. And if you do that, and if you live to help others to know him, you're not going to have your best life now. It's not going to happen. And he's encouraging them to persevere. Perhaps you've heard this. It's the story about the life-saving station. Let me read it for you. On a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was just a hut, and there was only one boat. But the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea and with no thought for themselves, went out day and night tirelessly searching for the lost. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding area wanted to become associated with the station and gave of their time and money and effort for the support of its work. And new boats were bought and new crews trained and the little life-saving station grew. Some of the members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge of those saved from the sea. They replaced the emergency cots with beds and put better furniture in the enlarged building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members, and they decorated it beautifully and furnished it exquisitely because they used it as a sort of club. Fewer members were now interested in going to the sea on life-saving missions, so they hired lifeboat crews to do this work. The life-saving motif still prevailed in this club's decoration, and there was a symbolic lifeboat in the room where the club initiations were held. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet, and half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick, and some of them had black skin and some had yellow skin. The beautiful new club was in chaos. So the property committee immediately had a shower house built outside the club where victims of shipwreck could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities as being unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. Some members insisted upon life-saving as their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called the life-saving station, but they were finally voted down and told that if they wanted to save lives of all the various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast, and they did. As the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the old. It evolved into a club and yet another life-saving station was founded. History continued to repeat itself, and if you visit that seacoast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along that shore. Shipwrecks are frequent in those waters, but most of the people drown. Paul decides, he talks about the what. Anytime you got a, you're dealing with a question, you have a what. What is love? Love is 
an unpayable debt. Love fulfills the law. Um, love is wide and it's deep. It does no harm. It is to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the what. We've got to ask another question. A what without a how doesn't really give you much. You have a standard, but no real way to achieve it. And fortunately, here and in another letter, Paul deals with the how question. Look what it says in verse 14. And uh, he talks about it elsewhere, but here's the how. After dealing with the what in 8 through 13, in verse 14, here's the how. And we'll try to understand it. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So here's the how. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? What does that mean? That's what we've got to understand. It's a really important question, though. It's, 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 it's the how question. If we're going to do the do's and don't do the don'ts, we've got to answer the how question. We've got to figure out how do we put on the Lord Jesus Christ so that we don't make, we don't gratify the flesh and give it to its desires, which aren't loving. How do we do that? Um, an important question, wouldn't you agree? We've got to figure this out. A what without a how is not very helpful. And the stakes are high. And so Paul, Paul says more about putting on Christ in other letters. Look what it says in Galatians 3. I put 23 through 27. I'm just going to read the last verse, and then we'll go back. He talks about putting on Christ. See what you can get from this. Okay, what does this verse tell us about putting on Christ? It's going to talk about it. Okay, here's what it says. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So what do we learn? Being baptized into Christ and putting on Christ are the same thing. When you are baptized into Christ, that's how you put on Christ. What does that mean? And he's going to talk about it a little bit. But, you know, baptism is, we've talked about that. In fact, Paul talks about it in um, Romans 6. Let me just read this for you. We died to sin, Paul writes. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might live a new life. We've talked about this before. You know what baptism, baptism in the, literally means to immerse. And so if I have a, a, let's say I have a pail of water and I put, let's say purple dye in it. Okay, put purple dye, so now the water is purple. Let's say I take a garment and I take this garment and I dunk it, that word, the word for dunk, that's the word for baptize. It literally means to immerse. I got a white shirt. I baptize it into a purple vat of water. And I take it out and its color is purple. Because what's true of the water becomes true of the garment that's dipped into it. Right? What's true of the water becomes true of the garment. The garment's white. I put it into purple water, and it comes out 
purple. What does it mean to be baptized into Christ? What does that mean? It means we're identified. What's true of Jesus becomes true of the one baptized into him. So Jesus died. And if we're baptized into Christ, we're baptized into his death. His death becomes our death. Okay? And we're brought out. Jesus' resurrection becomes our resurrection. Jesus' ascension to the right hand of the Father becomes our ascension to the right hand of the Father. And so why is that a good deal? Here's the deal. There's only one way to come out from under the authority of the Ten Commandments and the 613 commands found in the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant can't provide life you have to die. The only way out. In order to go from an old covenant to be under the jurisdiction of the old covenant to being under the jurisdiction of the new covenant, there's only one way to do this. You have to die. That's what it says. That's the rules. That's the way God set it up. So, you can die and live to tell about it, by being baptized into Christ's death. See, that's what he's saying. You know what it means to put on Christ? It means to identify and understand and believe that because you have been co-buried and co-raised and co-ascended with him, you know the deal with you? Jesus is no longer under the old covenant, right? If you're in Christ. You're not under the old covenant either. Is God counting your commandment disobedience and deciding if you're going to be accepted or not? If you're baptized into Christ, no. No. Why? Because that's what it means to be baptized into Christ and to put on Christ. Why is that important? You can't love with the depth and breadth that you need to if you think that God is blessing your behavior and cursing your disbehavior. You can't do it. That's what Paul, and again, this might seem theological. My gee whiz. It's the how. It's the only how that we're given. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that what that means? Understand that because of your relationship Christ with Christ, your relationship with the old covenant has changed. And you've got to understand it. Because if you do, you're going to find that it's going to transform you. And if you don't, it won't. And God causes us to love. It's what Paul is encouraging the Jewish Christians to do. Says now, look what it says, and we'll go back to verse 23 in Galatians 3. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned under the law. 
imprisoned until the coming faith should be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Um, Our ability to shine light and show love is directly connected to putting on Christ and stripping off the law. Um, It says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. It's in Galatians. It's the same what? Love your neighbors as yourself. And the same how. Paul goes in. Look what it says. Again, a little bit theological, but it's sometimes you really just got to sweat the details. Again, love your neighbors yourself. That's the what. Put on Christ. Be baptized into Christ. Understand that you've got to change relationship with the law. That's the how. Let's, let's just work our way through a little. Look what it says in Galatians 5.16. I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Okay? Put on Christ. Be baptized into Christ. Walk in the Spirit. It's the same reality. It's talking about the same thing. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the spirit, desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want. But if you are led by the spirit, here's what it says. If you're led by the spirit, you are not under law. This whole thing about being baptized into Christ, coming out from under the jurisdiction of the old covenant into the jurisdiction of the new is really important. The spirit is going to lead you to this place. And he's going to lead you to this place. Because the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Let me tell you a secret. These things cannot be forced or legislated. You can't make somebody love by threatening them if they don't. Do you understand? It doesn't work. In order to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit, we get baptized into Christ's death and burial and resurrection And when we start to understand that, we start to relate to God differently. He's not counting. He's, J.C. loved the word, hilios. To your unrighteousnesses and remembers your sins no more. Isn't that dangerous? I mean, really, really. God's hilios to my unrighteousnesses. He's gracious, favorable, benevolent. Non-reactive. Wouldn't that be dangerous if I believed that? Wouldn't I just do anything I wanted? It's a good question, but if I'm going to love, it's the only game in town. It's the only game in town. I've got to walk by the Spirit, and to walk by the Spirit is to not be under law. That's what he ends up saying. Um, Law can prescribe certain forms of conduct and prohibit others. 
again, you, you understand this. Love, joy, peace, patience can't be legally enforced. Um, Paul takes sides against those who try to use law to force something that law can't force. If you're going to love, it's not because you've been forced into it. It doesn't work. So stop trying. Say, what should I do? Put on Christ. Be baptized into Christ. Understand that there's a changed relationship with law. You say, but it's confusing. I got you. I understand. But continue to think about it. Make room for it. Think about it. As you do, it changes you. Ran into a quote, and I'm going to close quick, shortly. It's, um, a vine does not produce grapes by an act of parliament. It's interesting, isn't it? A vine does not produce grapes by act of parliament. They are the fruit of the vine's own life. So the conduct which conforms to the standard of the kingdom is not produced by any demand. Not even God's. But it is the fruit of that divine nature which God gives as a result of what he has done in and by Christ. We'll do communion in a second. You know what communion is, right? We're going to take bread and a cup. You know what this signifies? Forgiveness. Yeah. But not just forgiveness. JC's waiting for this. When Jesus comes a second time, we're going to have a covenant meal. And we're going to sit down as individuals who are embraced within a new covenant that gives us eternal life. JC will be there. And we'll celebrate being sons and daughters of God brought out from under the old, under the new. Because isn't that what Jesus said the night before he died? This is the covenant in my blood. This is the covenant. This is the New covenant in my blood. We can't understand Jesus' death until we understand the reason he did it was so we can be enfolded in a new covenant. You know what communion is? It's, it's, a, it's a warm-up. It's like a rehearsal dinner. You know what happens with rehearsal dinner? The principles are there, and you get together, and you kind of go through what it's going to be like, and you go to someplace afterwards, but it's really about the wedding thing, and, and the church is the bride of Christ, and... Jesus is the groom, and when we get to there, you know what it's going to be? There's going to be a marriage, and who is going to get married? We will. And who are we going to be married to? We're going to be married to eternal life, to a new covenant, and that's what communion is. It's practicing. So here's what you do. You're going to take the bread and take the juice. And what you're going to think, what he wants us to think, God, thank you that you sent Jesus and you commissioned those who were his people. Jesus is the king of the Jews. 
Now, God loves the world, but he sent them to be the messengers. So he's the king of the Jews who dispatched Jewish Christians so that we could hear, that we could be baptized into Christ, put on Christ, and that we could come out from under the old covenant and into the new covenant. And, and, and that's what I want you to think as you're taking this. Thank God, thanks for forgiveness. Not just forgiveness, thanks for making a new covenant with me. Thank you for sending Jesus to offer it to me, and thanks for dispatching Jewish Christians so that 2,000 years later I could read about it and know about it. And that's what I'd like you to do. So we're going to listen to some song. Grab the bread, grab the juice, and I want you to think about the fact that Jesus died. If you say, why did Jesus die? Here's what you're going to remember at the end of the day. Jesus died so that you could come out from under the old covenant and into the new. We just come back there, and there's um, there's no bread. Just grab juice and bread, and then sometime during the course of the song, eat the bread and drink the juice and think about the cross and what Jesus accomplished there. There is a um, a beaten up, bloodied car tire out in the parking lot. And some of us might be Levites who are going to walk by on the other side. Oh, no, not not putting any guilt on. No, I just, I just, I'm just being a wise guy. Uh, anyway, who is that? Who is that? There? Okay, back in the, back in the white, there you go. Uh, so if anybody can hang around and, 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 and do it. <laughs> With that kind of build up, how could you, how can you walk by? I mean, are there any, are there any Samaritans here or not? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your purposes and your promises. There are things that we need to understand, and they're not really easy to understand. It's easy to see you as blessing and cursing, and there are those things in the Bible that talk about that, but it also talks in the Bible about the transition at the cross from an old to a new covenant. And we don't always hear about that. and We don't understand it well, perhaps, but it's something that you would have us think about. It's why you installed communion as a celebration. You wanted us to think about the covenant. It's important we do so. So as we do so, I pray that we'd be clearer as we think about it. You give us covenant clarity. It doesn't happen overnight, but as it happens, it transforms us. Um, so continue to transform us through uh, the glory of the new covenant. In Jesus' name, amen.